The following is a presentation of the Premier Dance Network. Hi everyone, Kimberly Falker here, the founder and CEO of the Premier Dance Network, the only podcast network dedicated solely to the world of dance. And welcome to Pod to Chat with your host, Barry Corellis. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for coming to chat. I am your host, Barry Corollis, and you are listening to Pod to Chat Talking Dance on the Premier Dance Network. In this bi-weekly podcast, I candidly offer educational conversations and thoughtful analysis on all things dance. With my vast background as a director, choreographer, instructor, and dancer, I am happy to share my 19 plus years of experience with you, whether you're a professional dancer or just listening in for an insider's look into our fascinating art form. So put your earbuds in, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's talk dance. Hello, hola, privet, hello, hi guys, how are you doing? Um, welcome back to another episode of Pod to Chat, talking dance. Uh, if my voice sounds a little scratchy, it's because I like haven't used it at all today. I'm I'm recording earlier in the day, so I'm still warming it up. This is my <laughs> my my warm up. So that's why my voice sounds scratchy. Nothing going on here. Um, what is going on other than my voice sounding scratchy today? Um, it's been, I think, three weeks since I podcasted. I meant to get this one up last week, but, you know, just things did not happen in time to make that get up. But do not worry. I have a great topic for you guys this week. Um, what have I been up to since the last time I podcast? Um, I went to Indianapolis and I judged my last uh, Youth America Grand Prix of the season. I had a great time out there and met some very wonderful people in that community. Um, I also got to teach a lot of classes. Usually when I go, I teach like two or three, sometimes four contemporary classes, Um, but I taught six. So it was nice to get to really interact with the majority of the students that were attending the competition. Um, I really just enjoy those competitions because it's it's a great opportunity for, I think, everybody involved and um, to have a little bit of, like, to be able to touch the careers of so many dancers, uh, whether it's just briefly or if it becomes some something longer term where I go out and teach in the school um, or if I choreograph a solo or if they end up working with me at some point in the future, it's... It's very cool. Um, I always leave them feeling very inspired by the dancers and by my colleagues. And um, I was just really happy to really get to participate this year because the first time that I did Youth America Grand Prix was two weeks before the lockdown in March 2020. And then I didn't get to do any competitions uh, after that until this season. So it was just, it was fun. I'm really glad I got to do it. Um, so yeah, my season has come to a close with them and now I am refocusing on my own personal work and the movement headquarters. Um, just really figuring out what I'm doing for the summer. Um, as I've mentioned in the past, my summer is starting to book up pretty much. I have a tiny bit of space in June. I really have no more space left in August. And then I have a pocket of about four weeks in July that I'm, talking to places about booking but have not quite booked up yet. So if you are interested in having me come out to teach or choreograph at your summer intensive or in any of your programming um, this summer, please 
feel free to reach out to me. You can go to my, uh, actually, I would send you to my Instagram at B-K-E-R-O-L-L-I-S at B Carolis and send me a direct message or go on Facebook and send me a message there. My current, uh, my, my BarryCarolis.com website is not currently up and running. I need to, to redo that. Um, but yes, yeah, so I've been refocusing on that. Oh, I also have some availability in April and May if anybody is is interested then. Um, usually people are more working on their end of year showcases at this point. So, um, But if that's something that you're looking for, now you know how to get in contact with me. Um, but yeah, other than that, I'm refocusing on movement headquarters, finally making some leeway with exactly what I want to do. I had a meeting with some of our donors recently, and we are actually initiating the process to transition movement headquarters from a fiscally sponsored organization, um, which means a, a nonprofit uh, represents us. Um, to actually becoming a full not-for-profit, which is super exciting. We're also looking to hire a, a, a management slash administrative team to help us with some tasks and a grant writer. So if you know anybody uh, in the New York area that is, is good at that, that type of stuff, uh, please feel free to reach out to me and help me out. Okay, cool. So that is my intro. Is there anything else new going on? Oh, I'm teaching. I actually have open classes in New York City for the month of April. Um, I am teaching at Ballet Arts in City Center, which is one of my favorite studios in the entire city. Um, every Wednesday from 2.30 to 4 p.m. It's an advanced beginner ballet class. I'm covering for my friend Kate Lowe, who just had a baby, and she's taking some time to recover and to also uh, just get to know her little ones. So if you want to take class with me in New York City, every Wednesday throughout the month of April, I will be teaching an advanced beginner ballet class at Ballet Arts. All right, let's get on to this week's topic. Um, I've been saying this for years, but it became a a topic of conversation um, while attending Youth America Grand Prix. Um, I... I mean, I've been saying this for a while. I think I've even mentioned this in, in previous podcasts, but it was just something we talked about. And uh, when something is currently happening or is a current topic of conversation, it inspires me to, to want to share it with you. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, but yeah, so watching so many solos and group pieces, you start to get a sense of what is in style um, and what is not. And it's pretty clear that the current trend in choreography is to use melancholic, dark music and to have dancers express uh, the emotions of grief and sadness, pain, stress, and all those like darker feelings that we have like on the spectrum of, of emotion. There's like not necessarily joy or humor. Um, it's, it tends to be really dark. Um, I remember distinctly watching two souls within minutes of each other, uh, and the in the titles of those uh, solos was the word extinction. I think one was actually called extinction, and then the other one was called something something extinction. I can't remember what it was because we see we see so many solos. It happens very fast, um, and you see so much. So to every once in a while, you latch onto something. Um, and you remember it specifically, but uh, often we, we take notes and you have to like reference back to your notes. Um, I don't have them with me anymore. But uh, one was depressing and it shared the human fear of like us being killed off, which is funny. These are like children dancing these, but also at the same time, like my niece is 17 years old. And I, I think that there's a lot of fear in that age group because like for my age group, I'm almost 40. I'll be 40 in two years. Um, we like have our fingers crossed, like in the hope that um, we're not going to be like killed off by climate change. Um, 
old, I mean, not to mention many, many other things. Um, but that, I think that, that age group definitely has like an intense fear of like where the world is heading and if it's going to be something that can sustain them. Um, so while this is from a young dancer, I, I kind of get it. So yeah, as I was saying before I got sidetracked, the usual, um, <laughs> one was depressing and shared the fear, like the human fear of being killed off while the other one was an explosive and energetic, uh, piece that represented the, the extinction of dinosaurs. Um, it was a really fun piece. The dancer actually had like spikes on their back, um, and they, flew onto the stage and one of the first thing they did I don't know the names of acrobatic things because that was never a part of my training I did like aerials that I taught myself in jazz pieces um but there's a lot more acrobatics in uh especially jazz competition dance it was like she ran down stage she threw her body like forward so she was flying in the air but she was arched backwards and in the last second she tucked and rolled um it was very very impressive um but yeah, while the pieces, while both of these pieces were about uh, extinction uh, and a fear, and the fear of extinction, um, the sentiment was still dark and it implied the imminent end of a species, whether it was human or the dinosaurs. Um, so in this whole experience, a question came up essentially asking why, why all the darkness um, in choreography these days. Cause when you're sitting in, uh, at sitting at a judging table and you're watching like piece after piece, after piece, after piece, um, you start to see trends. Um, and whether that trend is, uh, one this year was the dancer pulls their leg behind them. Some, I think in cheerleading, they call this a scorpion. We just call it attitude back, like holding your, your, your foot and attitude back. I've seen it before where like, say your right foot's behind you and your left hand grabs the foot and pulls it up over your head. Um, but this year it was doing that and then switching it to the other hand and then pulling the head through the hole, uh, <laughs> like between the elbow and your body. Um, you see a lot of trends like like physical, technical trends, but you also um, start to see trends in like style and emotion. And yeah, the trend in choreography, and apparently, I mean, I'm newer to Youth America Grand Prix. I've done other competitions. Um, the trend tends to be pretty dark and it can be pretty depressing to sit on the, the judging panel, not from like a technical standpoint necessarily, um, but from like an emotional standpoint to just see like dark piece, sad music. Like how many times can you hear Oliver Arnold's? How many times can you hear Max Richter? Um, how many times can you hear uh, the darker pieces by Philip Glass? So they all have this like undertone of like, sadness, darkness, melancholy, uh, death and everything in between. Um, so yeah, this, this is the conversation that came out of it. I wanted to discuss with y'all. Um, so yeah, I, I have said this before. I've said this on this podcast, but I haven't gone to like great detail of, to my best recollection, but I wholly believe that we are in the modern dark ages <laughs> well, we have better access to money and food, life-sustaining healthcare, travel, technology, and more. My entire adult life has been one lived through the lens of fear. Um, I don't really remember much about the 80s. Um, 
I remember a lot about the 90s and I remember the innocence of my childhood. And I don't know if this is just because when you're a child, you're innocent and you're not like watching the news um, and you don't really hear about too many tragic events unless it's like something large. Like I remember Columbine happening in the 90s and that being uh, shocking. For those of you uh, who are younger that listen to this podcast, the Col- Columbine was really the first um widely televised school shooting. Um, and it was a display of horror and it was followed in real time the entire time on, on the news. Um, so for us, that was like shocking. Um, where today that's like, they don't even, they pretty much put on the news. There was a shooting at a school. Um, and people go, Oh, okay. And then they move on with their day because it's become so common. It's really unfortunate that we, we live in that, that type of place. But for me, in the innocence of my childhood in the, in the 80s and 90s, that was like really a mind-blowing experience. Um, so I do truly believe that we were in a much more innocent, uh, better time, in, at least in the 90s. Um, the world genuinely felt good to me. Um, of course I had fears, like I didn't want to get like attacked on the street. Like I wanted to make sure I had, uh, my family had enough money to like have a home and food on the table. Um, but those usually aren't things that kids worry about. I worried about those things. Um, but I think that kids today, um, I mean, obviously adults, but I think that kids today are less innocent in that regard and that they, they live, uh, with a lot more fear than, we did as, as kids. And I mean, that can also be attributable to the fact that like, yeah, I had a lot of television as a kid, but I know a lot of people in the nineties, they didn't have cable. Um, a lot of people didn't have internet. Um, in the two thousands, the internet was just starting to become more, uh, widely used. And there was more access to things like internet browsers that would allow you to search for whatever you wanted. Like when I was a kid, we had to be taught how to go into the library and use the card catalog and how to go into an encyclopedia and find the information that you wanted. And that encyclopedia was not fluid. It couldn't be changed from day to day when you had it. The information was pretty much set for a year. And then if your school had enough money to get a new encyclopedia the next year, you get that new information. But a majority of the time, you were still getting information that was dated several years back. Um, So yeah, it was just a a much more innocent time with a lot less access to information. So I don't know if the lack of information made it feel like we lived in an innocent world um, or if uh, it truly was a more innocent world, but that's what it felt like. Um, So yeah, Uh, I feel that all of this was shattered um, almost one month to the day of me turning 18 years old. Um, and that's because I, so I was born October 14th, 1983. Um, and September 11th, 2001 was really like one of the biggest moments in, I think the United States history. Um, as everybody knows, that was the day that the U S was attacked. They used our own planes, um, on us and they attacked buildings and, and sites. Um, so, I remember that day happening and obviously like the experience, I, I had just moved to Washington DC um, to go to the Kirov Academy of Ballet and um, it was the second day of school and my transcripts had not made it to the school yet. So I was the only student who was not in academic classes because they had academics in the school. Um, so I wasn't informed as to what was happening, but 
once we had a school meeting and they were talking about like how bad things were and I had no idea what was happening. I raised my hand. I was like, can you please explain? Um, but yeah, so that was like an, an, an intense moment of fear. Um, but not really like understanding on a grand scale because it was almost like the beginning of what I call the age of fear. Um, the modern dark ages. Uh, so yeah, I was afraid I was going to be drafted and that I wasn't going to actually be able to follow through with having, having a career. I couldn't imagine myself being a dancer and all of a sudden fighting in a war, um, which is strangely parallel to what's been happening in Ukraine right now. Because um, if you've seen the news, there, there are several dancers that are actually now um, working as in, in the military in Ukraine. Um, and even one dancer, sadly, was killed uh, a principal dancer with the National Ballet of Ukraine was killed in uh, an explosion uh, that while he was fighting the Russians. It's so sad, so tragic. Um, but yeah, I, I had these fears. And I think because nothing actually ended up happening with the draft there, I kind of believe it could happen. That's why this Ukrainian situation was so shocking to see. But um, it was like the beginning. This was the beginning of like the shattering of my childhood innocence. Um so 9-11 happened and then, I mean, there were other events that are happening in between these, but like, I'm just going to like name some like hallmark events that have happened since I turned 18 years old. Um, I mean, I was 17 turning 18 at the time. So um, 2001, we had 9-11, 2008, we had the Great Recession. And that was very scary because we had read about the Great Depression in books and how there were families that were losing their entire life savings and um, people not being able to eat and there weren't public programs to like really help people through this. Um, and yeah, it was pretty bad. And I was lucky to be one of those people that still had a job and was able to get through the great recession, um, relatively unscathed, like minus my 401k taking a major hit. Um, my husband was greatly affected by the great recession. He had trouble finding work. He, uh, he had just gotten his master's degree and then he couldn't do anything with it. And he had all this debt. Um, so I became a much, uh, I took on more of the responsibilities, um, which put stress on me. But I mean, in reality, we still had no issues paying our bills and we were able to survive without any uh, stress that we were going to end up without any food. Um, then, so that's 2008. I, I remember like starting to come out of that in 2012, 2013. This is also around the time that climate change really started to become a conversation and how if we don't reduce our carbon footprints, um, that we are likely going to have major issues with uh, our environment come 2050 to 2100. 2100. And I mean, as time has passed now, they're saying it's even shorter, it's even shorter, it's almost exponential um, versus like a specific time frame. Um, so we had that. And then uh, we had the election of and presidency of Donald Trump. And I know that I have a range of listeners here. And I have respect for those um, who voted opposite of me and a majority of the arts community and the gay community and all the communities that I'm a part of. But I truly think that whether you were for President Trump or you were not for President Trump, that um, it really was like a catalyst moment because the fear of, of liberals um, and what Trump could do to uh, the state of our country um, 
was very, very real. And then obviously for those who elected Trump, they elected him out of fear. So I, and I don't know if that fear feels the same across the board, like the liberal fear, fear of conservative, intense conservative ideals and the conservative fear of intense liberal ideals. I don't know if it's, it's comparative. It doesn't feel that way because having a, an elected official who had no um, political experience and who was really uh, used rhetoric and created a lot of disbelief and didn't have the, even, even though he didn't get support from certain people going, I am still your representative and I will try to take care of you um, within my ideals. It was kind of like, if you didn't vote for me, screw you. Like, I want nothing to do with you. Um, so yeah, I I feel like the election and presidency of Donald Trump was a, ba- a major thing. And then on top of that, crossing our fingers that it's a perfect four years so that we didn't have to deal with the inadequacies of a president who had no experience and was egotistical and narcissistic. Um, but we ended up having a hundred year pandemic, like uh, every hundred years pandemic, the disinformation, distrust of the media and politicians and health officials. Again, fear of climate change becoming exponentially greater, um, experiencing destructive weather events. I have survived Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Sandy and Irene. We had intense flooding in my community um, back in August, was it September? I think it was September. Um, and then now here we are with the potential for World War III um, with Ukraine and NATO and Russia. And even with that, they're talking about the famine that could be created from the wheat production in Ukraine and how it might not be able to get out to the world. Um, inflation. I went to the grocery store. We have a, a grocery store that's like a, somehow a suburban grocery store is like plopped into our like urban area of Queens and it's affordable, but they're closing because they asked the landlord not to increase their rent and the landlord increased their rent. And instead of like trying to figure something out, they just said, screw the community. We're going to drop out. So now I'm looking at our local grocery stores and I eat oatmeal every morning for breakfast and a box of Quaker oats oatmeal in our local store. We have two is $7 and 19 cents. I pay between, depending on if it's on sale, I pay like $3.20 to like $4.20. It's going to go up $3 so that I can eat breakfast every morning. Um, So anyway, there's so many things that are happening um, that are stressful and scary and feel like death is upon us and darkness and extinction in the end times. So I we definitely live in a time where everything feels dark. Um, so yeah, if you ask me, there's no question that we live in a dark time, if not what people will say in 20, 50, 100, 200 years, um, were the modern dark ages. And I bet you it'll, it'll be called like the age of disinformation, the internet age, um, the dark ages of 2000s. Um, it once was a hard. It once was hard to imagine we could exist in a time like the European Dark Ages, um, which I I did a, I did some research and they're called the Early Middle Ages, the, the Middle Ages, um, and during this time, political, economic, and cultural problems um, marked the period, and war, famine, disease, and intellectual decline supposedly ran rampant. I thought that that was really interesting to to read that intellectual decline was a large 
part of consideration for the Dark Ages. Um, I, I mean, with all this disinformation and distrust of the media that we're currently experiencing, that's intellectual decline. Um, granted, yes, some of that information could be incorrect, but to, to sit there and point at something and say, everything is disinformation, everything is incorrect. It's, it's not true. Um, there, there are always going to be things that are true and that aren't true. Um, there have been things that I've said that I thought to be true just based off of my upbringing. Um, so that is just lack of education. That's not necessarily disinformation. But if somebody believes it, it's disinformation. But yeah, so that intellectual decline really, really struck me when I was doing some research about the Middle Ages for this podcast. Um, as a kid, I remember seeing a depiction from this time period, uh, like the, the, the Middle Ages in Europe not the Middle Ages, but the Dark Ages, or I guess both. Um, but I remember seeing a depiction from this time period of a person. It was like a, an etching, like a drawing of a person laying, dying in the streets from a plague. Um, and I remember thinking how scary that was and how lucky we were to live in a time with modern medicine. And it seemed like a, an era of the past where... Um, the dark ages were just scary where people were dying in the streets because uh, you don't see that. Ha- you didn't see that happening um, in our current ages, but many years later in 2020, uh, I would live in one of the first epicenters of a pandemic where refrigerated trucks with dead bodies were only mere blocks away from my home, which I had no clue about because I was so scared to walk towards Elmer's hospital um, that I would only go west. So I had no idea that this was happening. So we didn't necessarily have bodies laying in the streets of New York City, but we had bodies in trucks on the streets. Uh, they weren't like in morgues. They were in trucks on our streets. And the crazy thing is, if you watch the news at all during this period of time, if you looked at the less wealthy countries, I think there was, uh, was it, in Colombia, I think in South, South, oh, maybe it was Ecuador. I can't remember, but in South America, when it hit, they were, they didn't have the resources in, in less wealthy countries. They were just putting the bodies in the streets because they couldn't keep them in the home because there was nobody to come and pick the bodies up. In India, when the Delta surge struck, they had images of people laying dead in the street. They had these makeshift uh, crematoriums that were out in public with wooden sticks over top of like piles, like a, a person with a pile of sticks and then burning them because they had nowhere to do it. And this is happening in the streets of the city. So I saw this depiction as a child and I was just baffled um, to see that this is exactly what was happening back then, a, a Dark Ages experience. Um, throughout this tragic period, even with modern medicine and technology, our country became uh, a political and religious fighting ground with immense disinformation that bred distrust of scientists, public health officials, news media, and so much more. <laughs> so there's that's intellectual decline like instead of actually paying attention to the people who are educated and give out inform gave out information that people trusted for years suddenly because somebody who loved to create distrust is in charge a segment of the country all of a sudden starts to have intellectual decline where they can't distinguish the difference between who to pay attention to and who not to pay attention to uh 
celebrity who uh, was once a liberal, but then changed to conservative and said in the past that he would only run as a conservative because um, they would listen, they would pay attention, and then uh, pretty much runs on a campaign of like distrust of the media. Um, it's it's baffling to me to see like the parallels. Add some riots, some severe weather events. Uh, you have droughts, which are causing crops to go. You have inflation. And it's become all the more evident that these are that there are those of us trying to fight against the intellectual decline bred of the age of the internet and the Trump era, um, and also trying to that 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 there are also uh, things happening that happened years ago that are directly parallel. Um, to, to the, the old dark ages. Um, I don't have this in my notes because I was actually having this conversation with a fellow uh, company director and choreographer in New York at Steps on Broadway the other day. And we were, I, I don't know how this conversation came up, but we were also talking about this. Um, and he is, uh, I believe, Iraqi. Um, I'm pretty sure he's Iraqi. If not, he's Iranian. Don't hold me to it. But um, he is from the Middle East, and he said it's it's funny because while people in the West feel this way now, he said those of us that have lived in other parts of the world, we've had these these feelings for quite a while. Um, it's just taken a long time for them to rever- reverberate out to the West because there's so much fear and there's not as much money um, and people not getting their information from poor play, uh, like poor uh, what's the media outlets um, or not being able to get the information at all because there's a dictator in place um, and where religion rules over um, like common decency and over being able to take a scientific and intellectual approach to gaining information. And I thought that that was a really fascinating thing. Um, are the dark ages only allowed that they are are the dark ages only going to hit if you are starting to feel the decline of your wealth i don't know like there there it actually breeds a greater conversation because when we when we think about like our experiences in the world they're very personal and it's a very small like microcosm of like the greater community like you have your personal you have like your your family you have like if you live in an apartment complex or like a townhouse community you have that community and then you have like your local uh like school districts and like where you vote and then you have like the region that you're part of and you have the country that you're a part of and then you have the continent you're a part of and then it expands to the hemisphere and then you have the world so we often forget that there's so many different experiences happening in the world that we think that our experience is the only experience and it's not true and I was really glad that my eyes were open in this conversation um, to to have the have access to somebody who could open my mind to the idea that this is our my experience and this could be potentially be our experience as a country. But we as a country being very wealthy and having a strong military um, and having resources to take care of people when they don't have food or having resources to take care of people when a natural disaster strikes. There's so many other parts of the world that don't have access to this. So for them, they might be living uh, in much greater fear uh, or have been living in much greater fear um, 
and desperation for much longer than we have here in the United States. And that was a very eye-opening moment for me. So uh, the idea of the Dark Ages where they were specific to Europe, um, I'll be curious if these modern Dark Ages, if anybody ever coins the term. I'm copywriting it, people. Um, but if anybody coins it beyond uh, this, if it'll be specifically like a United States Dark Ages or if it will be like a worldly Dark Ages or if it'll be just like the Dark Ages of wealthy countries because maybe all these other countries always feel like they're in the Dark Ages. Um, I mean, I've been to third world countries but I and I've been to Israel, which is a country at war, but I haven't been to a country that is fully suppressed in that sense. Um, so, or even like extremely, extremely poor, like some African countries, like I've been to Peru where there's definitely some severe poverty. Um, I've been to Cambodia where there is severe poverty. Um, but like to be, to be in a country where there's severe poverty, like religious law, um, and, uh, all those things, I, it would be a completely different experience. Maybe that's something I, I do need to experience in life. But yeah, okay, that was a, a long tangent, but that's what I'm here for, pot of chat, chatting along, talking about dark ages and dance, that's what you're here for, right? All right, so I, I think it's it, it was relevant to discuss all of this before I talk about the art born of this period, um, because I think it just offers some good uh, insight uh, into like the way of the world today. Um, at least my world that I experience, um, which is the national dance community in the United States. Um, obviously, I'm neither a historian nor a philosopher on world matters, but I do hold a place in the arts community where I have access to a wider view of art being created. Um, from high art to local art to educational art, I, I, I tend to interact um, with professional companies, with local recreational and pre-professional schools um, and institutions that uh, teach dance and also, um, I guess, the politics of dance. I mean, having access to this podcast to is, is an educational f- part of, of my practice in, in the dance world. Um, but yeah, I, I can tell you it's actually surprising when I see choreography uh, to lighter and happier music or a piece that is happy or joyful. Um, I mean, granted, when I see like a classical variation or classical ballet, um, I don't really count that because it's a piece that's already been created. I'm talking more about like the newer choreography. And when you go to a competition like Youth American Grand Prix, the classical is all like older choreography and the contemporary is all created specifically for the students to perform. So it is like pretty much like the newest art um, that you can see. Um, So yeah, it's, there's a very low percentage of choreography that's being done to happy music, light music, and with, uh, happy and joyful undertones in the the work. Art reflects the times that we live in. So this makes sense to me. Um, If you're a choreographer and you're going through a breakup and you're depressed, you might want to create something about that 
breakup. Or maybe you want to create something that's um, going to help you feel better about it. So maybe it starts off dark, but by the end, like they see the light. But the over, like the overlying theme is darkness. Um, I, I honestly think it is often the art that is less seen and le- less represented on large stages also that reflect the general sentiment of our population. Um, I don't like to use this term, but it's the best way I can explain it, but it's like the common people's art versus high art. High art, um, often it is, like you can be commissioned to do uh, to create a piece and the director can say, do whatever you want. Or they could say, I have a specific topic or a specific um, story that I would like for you to, to share. Um, so there's a little bit more of like a leading into creation, um, than people who are just creating solos for students. So you might have in in the high art, you might have less like social influence, um, in, in the work that's being done. Like maybe they're doing an all, Stravinsky program, so you have to find some Stravinsky music. Um, or maybe they don't have access to an orchestra and they want you to use something that's more electronic. So um, you might be guided more, but in, in the local art form, it's often, I'm just expressing myself. Or they look at the student and they go, I want to create something for the student, specific to the student, and then maybe they ask the student like of a topic and that, that might also be a reflection of that. Um, like the the choices that are being made in music i already mentioned but they're they're all like in a minor key they're all darker um and it's just uh it's just reflective of like i i think it's either reflective of an emotion that somebody's trying to put out or it's reflective of the music that people naturally uh want to listen to when they feel in that state um I've been trying to think of like an example in the past that might also show like a reflection of darkness um, in a time. And if you look at George Balanchine's Four Temperaments, uh, one of my favorite pieces that he did, he choreographed that I think in 1947. um, And... The music is generally in minor keys, um, and there's sort of like a dark feeling to it. Even though it's not even a story, you feel like a sense of like intensity and darkness and um, drama in it. Uh, Also, his La in 1951, um, there are rumors that uh, the lady in white is the innocence of the world and that death is actually um, bringing upon the beginning of World War, I think it was World War One, but it might have been World War Two. But he created these pieces in the subsequent years after uh, World War Two. Um, so it makes sense with that. If you look at pieces uh, that have been created today, like I think of uh, Christopher Wielden created, um, what is the name of that piece? Uh, oh no, I can't remember it off the top of my head. I uh, The Earth... Um, it's to a Max Richter piece, um, but there's lyrics to it. And that's like a very dark piece. A lot of people want to use, again, like Oliver Ar- Arnoldson, um, Max Richter and Philip Glass. And uh, those tend to be like darker and more uh, in, in more minor scale or in more minor keys. Uh, 
And the other thing that I think is interesting about it is that it gives you sort of like a soundscape to move off of, but it doesn't force you to tell a story based off of the melody. So it really truly allows it to be like an inter- a, a true interpretation of the choreographer. So even in a lot of high art. Oh, what was the other thing? I, I saw uh, Perry Dance, uh, Contemporary Dance Company this weekend. They did um, it was something like six or eight small vignettes and then a longer piece at the end. And all of the pieces were dark and dramatic. Um there was there was very little happiness and lightness. So whether it's high art, is there such thing as medium art, medium art, or or um, the the more local art, uh, darkness reigns supreme. Um, so just to finish out this podcast, I want to share uh, one of the conversations that came out of uh, this discussion at Youth America Grand Prix. Um, we were having a, a, a chat with the winner of the Outstanding Choreography Award at, in the Indianapolis semifinals at Youth America Grand Prix. Um, and we had mentioned how uh, she really caught our attention because most of her pieces were light and happy. Um, one of her pieces, it was more of a character. It was like a, a character piece. And the dancers were wearing like multicolored fluorescent costumes. And then the choreography was just so fun. And it was towards the end of the competition, like maybe one of the last like 10 pieces we saw. There were like tons of kids on stage. And it just made a smile. Um, it was joyful. And it actually made you forget of all the darkness in the world. This is like right around the time that like Ukraine just got invaded. Um, we're dealing, still dealing with this pandemic. Like we're, I was sitting in the judges panel with a mask on. Um, there's always news coming out that things are bad. And for a moment I sat there and I smiled and I looked at my fellow judges and we laughed and we we're like, this is just so fun and so enjoyable to be able to uh, watch something that isn't like, dark and depressing because we had spent four days sitting and watching dark and depressing, dark and depressing. And it, you can't help but start to feel dark and depressed when you're watching all this stuff. So, I mean, not only was the choreography good that this, this uh, choreographer had created, but she also, she also uh, went outside of what everybody else was doing. And she drew us into the art, which is, and, and I think that's one of the most important things about art. It, it's supposed to be, I mean, you should be able to express yourself and uh, your experiences through art, but also at the same time, we can't forget that you can also use art to bring people out of their own personal experience, to bring happiness and joy and life to people. And that's exactly what she did. Um, and in talking to her about like why she she choreographed these lighter pieces, whether it was intentional or it just happened to be what it was. Um, she said it was intentional. Um, she had experienced the challenges of COVID, uh, where her business lost a lot of uh, students and income, and she had to let go of several employees that she didn't want to. She also had several life changes um, that greatly and deeply affected her and her own happiness. But she said that she... Uh, chose to lean into, she chose not to lean into the dark side of things, um, but instead to lean into the joy and happiness of, of life so that it could make her happy and that, uh, 
it could be a reflection of where she wanted to be and where she wanted to go. Um, and I thought that was very moving. Um, it, it wasn't like the most common reaction you would expect. She turned a dark period of her life into something that could bring happiness and joy to people. And it, it was just very touching. And uh, it actually even inspired me to look at my own personal work as a choreographer and to think, okay, when do I express myself personally? And when do I find the ability to uh, express joy and happiness and humor and pull people out of the dark times that we live in and allow them to have a, a moment of calm and peace and joy? Uh, when, when, when can I do that? Where can I do that? It makes me, it makes me think and it helps me grow as a choreographer too. So um, I was really glad that I got to experience that. And I was actually really glad that I was in a position where I could have a conversation with this choreographer um, to understand where this came from and why she did what she did. So um, I think it's also really cool because it, it, it goes to show that, yes, during dark times, you can still have happiness and joy. And I think honestly, that that's like one of the things that has really surprised me so much um, in my own thoughts that we currently live in the modern dark ages. I looking in the history books, like as a child and learning about what life was like, it just seems like it's almost like there's no color in the world. Everything was black and white. People were starving and dying everywhere and struggling and uh, people were stealing and people were fighting and there were all these things happening and that there was no happiness and no good in uh, the world, that uh, every personal family was distressed and scared and uh, in danger. Um, but what I'm learning is that it wasn't like that. It was just segments of the population. And often these segments, like I was saying, where uh, this, the, the director that I was talking to was saying that it's not this, that the West is finally feeling the effects of this like age of fear. It's been happening in other places for a long time. Um, it, it's, it just that you can be personally happy and you can have positive, wonderful life experiences, even when the overwhelming feeling of society is dark and has tragedy in it. Um, so yeah, this has just been a very interesting topic to explore. Um, I was heartened to share this conversation with others and for them to agree with me and to take it on as a serious topic and not just like Barry talking crazy. Um, I think a lot and I put a lot of thought into things and I appreciate when my opinions um, spur other people into deep thought and creates conversation. Um, so yeah, I think this is an interesting conversation and I really wanted to share it with you because the world is crazy right now, people. And maybe it's just my world, <laughs> but it's crazy. And I feel like a lot of other people's worlds feel that way too. Um, I do have to put out a disclaimer. I'm not a historian. Um, my research on the, the dark ages 
was minimal. I just wanted to get like an overall sense. Like I learned about it as a kid and I need to just refresh like certain ideas of it. Um, so don't like come at me and be like, this is not exactly what the dark ages are not even calling it the dark ages anymore. Um, don't come at me. It's, it's just, I was doing some like baseline research to get a sense and compare like how I feel about the times today versus the way that they were previously. Um, this is my opinion. Um, but it makes complete and total sense to me personally. Um, that we live in the modern dark ages. So with all that said, um, I'm really curious to hear exactly what your thoughts are on the topic. Um, if you would like to reach out to me, uh, I gave you information at the beginning of the podcast, but um, I'm about to do it in my outro as well. Um, but if you have any thoughts on the matter, I'd be really curious to hear what you hear. Um, share this with your friends and your colleagues and excuse me, everybody that you know, and and see if they also feel the same way. Um, It's just been fear, fear, fear since 2001 in the United States. And uh, I feel like it's going to go on for my entire life. Uh, I hope it's a short period of time. But I mean, who knows at this point, Uh, we've been living in tragic times, nonstop for the past several years. So it's hard to think of living in uh, an era again where things feel more carefree and we don't feel like we are on the verge of like societal, environmental, economic uh, collapse. So fingers crossed though, gotta have hope, right? Um, (laughs) That was positive. See, I can be positive. Okay, I think that that's probably a good note for for me to end on. Let's get on to this outro. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Pod to Chat Talking Dance. If there are any topics you'd like to hear me talk about, please feel free to reach out to me on my social media. Uh, you can go to Instagram at bcorollis, that's B-K-E-R-O-L-L-I-S. Um, or you can go into Facebook where I am Barry Corollis. Um, or you can even go out on my company website, www.movementhqballet.org. Uh, and go to our contact sheet and reach out to me there. Um, you can also reach out on there if you'd like to become a sponsor for our podcast or to book master classes in ballet or contemporary technique for choreography or speaking engagements. I hope you enjoyed listening in and talking dance with me. If you enjoyed this chat, please feel free to share, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. Every bit of extra visibility helps keep these podcasts running. And if this didn't fulfill your dance fix, check out my sister podcasts on the Premier Dance Network. If you want to connect with me to see where I'm choreographing, teaching, and what I'm doing in my everyday life, again, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, where my name is B. Corollis. My company Instagram is at movement underscore headquarters, or on Twitter at Bariscos. Also, be sure to check out my blogs. I blogged for five years on Life of Freelance Dancer, about working as a nationally touring independent contractor freelance artist. Uh, and then I also have Dancing Off Stage, where I wrote about the post-performance careers of professional dancers. If you'd like to check out my choreography, I have two YouTube channels. You can head on over to youtube.com and you can search for B. Corollas or Movement Headquarters. Thanks for listening in to Pata Chats. I hope you return two weeks from this Saturday to talk dance with me. And remember to go out and support your local dance scene.